Pashukanis argues that the political authority of the state appears to be dissociated from the economic domination and specific needs of the capitalist class in the market. He thus hypothesizes that the capitalist state is a dual state, a political state and a legal state. Thus he says the state as an organization of class domination and as an organization for the conduct of external wars does not require legal interpretation and in essence does not allow it. This is where the principle of naked expediency rules. Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Jason. And this is Steven. Steven is back, yeah. And we're going to talk about uh, Pashukanis and the building blocks of Marxist legal theory in the Soviet Union. Fuck yeah, this is going to be boring. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> we're, we're bringing it back to some real nerd hours, which uh, is generally just Jason and I do that, and we just do that on patreon but you guys are getting some free real nerd hours with uh our good buddy from uh i guess our sister podcast (laughs) (laughs) our 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 dormant sister podcast um supreme leap forward the the best the premier the premier (laughs) communist legal podcast yeah we've we just got to get hunter and we'll have absorbed that whole podcast oh man hunter our our sentient political science degree so yeah, we're talking about uh, Pashukanis, which is which is kind of neat because like no one's ever talked about him before, uh, for the most part. And I made half of what I'm going to say up, uh, but it, it no one will know the difference, <laughs> and that's really true because all of these people died a very long time ago. Um, and so if you if you like try to look up on other podcasts or look up on like YouTube, like what the fuck these people were talking about, like you're not going to find it. Um, and it's 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 sort of really difficult to explain um, what was going on at the time, uh, in large part due to the fact that it was in a different fucking language than any of us speak, and most of it's never been translated. And so uh, there are limitations in terms of of what we can understand that they were doing, and uh, and who thought what about who and when. Uh, but Pashukanis is a is a neat thing to talk about, so I'm happy to do it. So yeah, so in order to understand who Evgeny Pashukanis was, um, you kind of have to understand the guy that came before him, uh, which is a guy named uh, Peter Stuchka. Stuchka was a uh, Latvian Marxist. Um, he's about 30 years older than Pashukanis was, and he actually founded the uh, Latvian Social Democratic Party. Um, and so while he was in Latvia, he was producing writings on on marxism and and legal theory and things and so that of course got him fucking banished from latvia so he had to go somewhere else uh he ended up going from uh from latvia to saint petersburg uh where he participated in the uh, 1905 russian revolution the failed russian revolution rather not the not the good not the good one that we talk about later the great (laughs) the great dress rehearsal the good old cause but uh and and Stuchka's uh, Latvian Social Democratic Party ended up merging with the Bolsheviks. And then during the actual Russian Revolution, the one we all remember, uh, because we were there, I guess, he actually led the uh, Latvian Rifle Regiment on behalf of the Bolsheviks. And so once the... Oh, that's actually... I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The the Latvian Riflemen were supposed to be like one of the crack elements of the Red Army. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And so in the... Uh, He's that classical archetype of like the adventure lawyer rifleman, right? It is, yes. Just like, just like Steven. Exa- exactly <laughs> like me. Um, 
And so, uh, so when the Bolsheviks formed uh, that inaugural government, Stichka gets appointed the uh, Commissar of Justice, and later he gets appointed to uh, the uh, as the chairman of the Supreme Court for the Russian Republic. And interestingly, when he arrives to assume this post, uh, he gets to the courthouse in in then Saint Petersburg, and all of the judges who had been there had fled, <laughs> like shortly before he got there. And so when Stuchka arrives, the only people left are like the clerks and, and, you know, secretaries and things like that. And so he tells them, you will all be judges now. And so that's what, <laughs> that's what they did. And so uh, he, he promoted all of them up to the position of, of the judiciary. And when those judges and lawyers finally started like trickling back in, he made those people secretaries. Um, and so there's there, there's a period <laughs> as it should be <laughs> there's a period from uh as somebody that started back in 2004 as a paralegal and worked all the uh, most of my life has been spent as a as a secretary so i i, I appreciate this um but at any rate <laughs> uh so sort, you'll be a judge one day steven s- sort of that uh that t- not not as long as this podcast is public um so <laughs> <laughs> We just had to have the revolution first. So there's this period between 1917 and through the 20s where there's just this large volume of of, uh, of writing on Marxism and law, all most of which is, of course, in Russian. And uh, Stutzka writes a book called The Revolutionary Role of Law and State. And that book is not yet in English entirely, only, only bits and pieces of it is. Uh, and I have some of the selected writings, uh, which you can buy on Amazon or wherever else, uh, by Charlotte and Burns, uh, where they, they do have some translations of things that he did, but we don't have a complete version. But the main thing to take away from Stuchka as opposed to Pashikanis is Stuchka doesn't really develop a new theory of law he doesn't really take the things that Marx wrote and extend them into a, and and use them to mold a legal form. What Stuchka wrote about uh, is it was more of a polemic or critique of the existing law as it existed at the time and legal relationships, rather than to for the purpose of building, you know, what what the future socialist legal theory or legal model might be. But uh, but but Stuchka did believe that at some point the state would eventually wither away following the period of transition uh, and following the October Revolution. The the Bolshevik official objective was that uh, the remnants of law would officially be, would ultimately become superfluous and wither and disappear. And their vision at the time was of a new social formation in, in which people would be able to settle their disputes and again this is why he uh, um, promoted people the the laypersons to the judiciary is the point was to be able to settle the disputes with simplicity and without elaborately organized uh, tribunals legal representation and to de-emphasize and eventually abandon uh, the labyrinth of rules and laws and procedures and evidence so the idea was is people have ordinary conflicts and we should be able to adjudicate these conflicts without relying on complex rules of procedure. Uh, we should just be able to decide what's the fair thing to do in a given situation. That's sort of a pre-capitalist way of uh, 
resolution, dispute resolution. Well, I mean, if you, if if I, I think it was in the first or maybe second episode I did with y'all, uh, I, I talked about what I think a preferable um, means of adjudicating differences would be, and that's utilizing uh, peer mediation and alternative dispute resolution. So, I mean... Yeah, yeah, I remember what, that. That was a good episode. Everyone should check that out. What happens is there's just like this super over-reliance on if you have a problem, you're supposed to call the police. And if you have an issue, you're supposed to, you know, like people get in these arguments and they're yelling at each other, I'm going to sue you and things like that. And what you're doing is you're amplifying uh, the complexity of the issue rather than actually boiling it down to um, resolve the whatever the conflict is at the heart of that dispute, uh, you're adding additional conflicts, you're adding additional disputes. Uh, so you're not actually making things any better when you call the cops to help you adjudicate a situation, typically. I mean, unless your life's in danger. Uh, and even then. Um, There's a good chance you can get shot. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, well, depending on what color you are, that's a big factor. And so that was, that was the idea. And what's interesting is... Um, in the uh, the ABCs of Communism by Nikolai Bukharin, uh, he he talks about um, how things would transition. He talked about the administrative administration of justice in a bourgeois society, uh, the way that the judiciary would be elected by the workers, uh, popular law courts, revolutionary tribunals. Uh, but he also talked about um, he also talked about proletarian penal methods. And what what was interesting is um, is trying to understand the way that they intended to resolve uh, criminal um, occurrences in the Soviet Union. And what, what Bukharin writes at the time is, he writes, when we come to consider the punishments inflicted by proletarian courts of justice for criminal offenses, which have no counter-revolutionary being, bearing, we find them to be radically different from those inflicted for similar offense by bourgeois courts. This is what we should expect because the great majority of crimes committed in bourgeois society are either direct infringements of property rights or are directly connected with the property. So that was what Bukharin, who was also a, a, a lawyer, uh, that was one of the things that, that, that was how he sort of analyzed laws. A law is is basically uh, boiled down to disputes over, over property, essentially. Uh, right. And so he, it was natural in a situation where property is the the uh, the prime object of law, uh, that the state would take vengeance upon criminals, and that punishments inflicted by bourgeois society would be uh, various expressions of the vengeful sentiments of the infuriated owner. And uh, we also talked about this at the last time, but it's it's interesting. And Pastrikhanis raises this in his general theory of law and Marxism. But the way that we um, determine punishments now is so much different than the way you would have in say a feudal society where you know uh it's things like hard labor or things like eye for an eye type behavior right um yeah what we've now done is we've converted the so in a in a civil lawsuit when you're civil when you're suing someone for damages uh, because you've broken your arm and you had to go to the hospital and you lost this much work and that equates to this much amount of money, okay? Um, I lost this amount of future earning capacity. I lost this many days of work and that translates to this dollar amount. 
uh, and that's how civil lawsuits work. And so what we've done is we've taken that same principle and we've applied it to criminal law, to criminal punishments. So we've decided that, okay, um, you stole, you know, a hundred bucks from the cash register. Uh, that's going to equal this many days of punishment converted from the amount of, you know, labor value that you have at the time. So in San Antonio and Bear County, for instance, each day that you spend in jail is worth X amount of dollars. And in order to, uh, in order to satisfy a fine on a, on a class B or higher misdemeanor, or even a felony, you have to serve a certain amount of time that would be equal to that time in order to satisfy your judgment. So we've converted uh, punishment into use value. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. (laughs) And actually, um, I was going to say, before we get too much further afield on that, um, I think it's probably worth us laying down a little bit about the context in which this debate is actually happening, right? Because... It may go without saying, but it's this is more than just like theorization about what might happen in a period in which, uh, you know, human beings are that people are trying to figure out how to build a new civil society or, or what is the basis of like, you know, whether or not there should be law or administration or whatever. It's that it's taking place as that is happening. Right. Like, sure, that he's you know, these are. You know, lawyers that have a background who are also, you know, practical revolutionaries and involved in the movement or whatever. But like the debate in the 1920s is on the heels of a successful revolution. And I think like just, you know, it's like it's it goes along with the, the debates about proletarian culture and the debates about um, I guess the way what, what I'm trying to say is that. This is a practical question of transition, right? This this isn't just abstract, you know, theorizing. This is this is actually being in the middle of the situation and trying to decide how we're going to coexist and adjudicate disputes. Yeah, this sort of fits in with a uh, a theme that seems to pop up in a lot of the episodes that we do is just transitional forms. Right, like the big, you know, I think we'll get we'll be able to get into this, but like the the big question that I think like I want to try to figure out is how we conceive of what we actually mean when we, when we talk about, you know, socialism and the transition or whatever, because I think in these debates, um, you can see the people that tend away from Pashukanis to be essentially advocating for a kind of socialist law as a, as the, the legal framework for a stable society, but that somehow exists in between two modes of production. Right. Like if there's a private appropriation, there's the capitalist mode of production and then there's some social form of ownership. Right. Right. What is the thing in between? And right. The debate, it seems, is like, can there be is there such a thing as a stable transitional society? Well, Lenin doesn't think so. In fact, he says that, you know, the state should immediately begin to wither away and that the process of socialism would be one of being constantly in flux until you reach the point of communism. So there's, there's no stability possible using that formulation, you know, which, you know, sets Lenin apart from a lot of the, the, 
the actual legal theorists at the time, because neither Stuchka nor Pashikanas believed that there wouldn't that a, that a period of transition wouldn't be necessary. I mean, Bukharin writes about it extensively in the ABCs of communism. I mean, it, it, there there just seems to be no question in the minds of these people who are actually trying to um, create these models by which people can continue existing in the society. They, they all seem to take for granted that there has to be a period of transition. Well, I mean, Lenin did believe that, that there would be a period of transition. He just thought that the withering would begin immediately. Right. I yeah. mean, like, yeah. So so to kind of to kind of rephrase um, what I was trying to put forward is it seems like the it's it's up there with like the debate about socialism in one country and about the possibility of like a long term transitional society. Right. As opposed to like, I think, you know, the state and revolution sort of vision of Lenin versus the practical uh, pragmatic retreat into NEP. And, you know, like they have this period of all the codification of laws take place around the same time as they uh, they start to they they adopt the new economic policy model, right? Right. That was the um, that was the primary shift in in their thinking is once the new economic policy was was developed, they had to codify the rules by which it, it would exist, and, and in order to do that, they had to build extensive codes, civil and criminal codes. They had to uh, bring prosecutors back in and establish a new bar. Uh, I mean, bar in the legal sense. Uh, by which people could become qualified to interpret these new rules. Uh, and so it became hierarchical very quickly. Uh, you had a professionalized judiciary again, uh, professional legal education, uh, at, to the point where law during the NEP was basically indistinguishable from law in any other European country. Well, I mean, the NEP was was sort of an attempt to establish a, you know, state-governed market to help rebuild the uh, the economy, industrialize the the country, and that would necessarily reestablish those property relations that we were talking about. Right, the, that would be nece- necessarily necessary to govern by law. Right. Yeah, that whole period of the 1920s is a pretty good um proof of Pashukanis's uh his claim, right? That uh yeah. That law is a is a real form of social being, right? That right. It's a, that there's like a there's there's well, no there's no basis for any of the the legal codes from the from the new economic policy period before it because they're these are things that are designed to govern a set of relations that at least temporarily cease to exist. And before we before it sounds like we're putting like any kind of value judgment on it, like I don't see what the other option would have been at this point. Oh yeah, I don't mean it yeah. to be like this. This is not the anarchist critique of you know revolution. A uh, hundred years ago in another country that says like, oh, man. like I just I'm just talking about like the way in which history played out, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be fair, uh, they tried it. I mean, that the story yeah. about Stuchka going to the courthouse and telling the clerks they're the new judges. I mean, that's the attempt. Um, right. It just became unmanageable, partly because of just it just wasn't possible to um to do any of that in a state of war communism uh, where you're, you know, trying to rush industrialization, trying to make sure that people are still eating and also fending off the whites. I mean, it's fighting, <laughs> fighting the battle for space. Exactly. Instead of time. Right? Um, yeah. 
So I, I, I so, don't ever want to seem like I'm necessarily too hard on the idea that, you know, the new economic policy wasn't sort of manifestly necessary. Uh, but they did try to, like, hasten the withering of the state. It just didn't work for sure. a million reasons. Yeah, it didn't work for a million reasons. Um, but so to me, the more the more useful discussion uh, is uh, flowing from that, right? The, the thing... Because I don't think we stop there at like, yeah, well, you know, it's hard to make a revolution and uh, transitioning between two forms of social existence is not super easy. Like, so if we, if we can establish that, right, that's that's not super controversial to me. The the more the the discussion that I would want to have out of that is about is there such a thing, right? Like, if we're talking about this period of transition, uh, is it a, the uh, is there such a thing as socialist law? Right, socialist jurisprudence, or is there instead, you know, is it is it a matter of like extending the concept of bourgeois right to its maximum limits and reducing the number of things which are criminalized to the point where, you know, like is there is a, is there a deliberate way in which to transcend this, and what does it look like? Because I I think that seems to that seems to be the debate, you know, the you know the left opposition versus you know entrenched state form kind of debate but in the legal system right well that depends on the way you look at socialism like and i I think that recently recently within the past few years i've come to think of socialism as much less of the way that i'd always used the idea of socialism before was basically just the early stages of communism you know so it's just like basically you can't have any of the old elements of capitalism that made it bad otherwise it's not real socialism the way that like third camp Trotskyists talk about socialism. I come to think of socialism as a process and not a system. Um, Socialism is like, you know, if you've got a scale with a bunch of marbles on either side, one's the capitalism side, one's the communism side. And eventually you get to put more marbles on one side to make it go all the way down. Right. Uh, That's what socialism is. And thinking about it as like a static kind of thing that has its, its, its uh, own distinct categories that, if you don't match all, if you don't tick off all the little boxes in it, then it's not socialism. Is a, uh, it's kind of stupid and not really useful. Yeah, it can't be a, a black and white proposition. But I think the difference between um, what Stuchka thought about uh, socialist law and what Pashikanis ends up writing about socialist law is Stuchka doesn't really personally make the attempt to envision what it would be or what the underlying principles of those interrelationships would need to be governed, what kind of law would need to govern those interpersonal relationships, whereas, whereas Pashukhanis takes a different approach. And Stuchka more or less um, points to Pashukhanis and says, yeah, listen to that guy. That, he got it right. Uh, but he doesn't really do a lot of it himself necessarily. And so Pashukhanis is quite a bit younger than Stuchka, uh, he's 30 years younger than Stuchka. Pashukhanis gets banished from Russia in uh, 1910 for uh, sedition. And then he goes to Munich. And while he's in Munich, he receives a legal education, uh, joins the Communist Party, and eventually, after the October Revolution, returns to Russia and joins the Russian Communist Party. He had been active with the Social Democratic Workers Party since he was a teenager, though. Uh, and so under the new Bolshevik government, he gets appointed to a judgeship in 1918, and then he transitions, uh, into academia full time. Uh, and he moves into the communist academy in Moscow in 1924. 
And it's that year when he writes the sort of the uh, Marxist legal Bible, uh, as it was known at the time, was uh, the general theory of law and Marxism. And what's interesting is that originally had a subtitle, and that subtitle gets excised uh, once it becomes sort of a Bible. But the original subtitle was an experiment in the criticism of basic juridical concepts. Uh, and that that subtitle gets excised because what they wanted was they wanted to be able to point to a concrete legal theory and say, this is what we are, this is what all ideas flow from. And to call it an experiment or to call it an introduction would undermine the concreteness, the absoluteness of, uh, of, of what Pashukanas was trying to write. So that portion gets... I was going to say, yeah. There's a there's a very serious implication there whenever you whenever you present well that that very debate is uh, about you know the nature of transition is actually like is being had out in the title of the book even exactly and, and that's really interesting and that completely goes away uh, and and to be fair uh, Pashukanis didn't really object all that much <laughs> to that because uh, he got to get raised up to higher and higher status. Uh, and so there were a lot of benefits that came along with, you know, uh, being propped up as sort of the leading light of uh, Marxist legal theory. Uh, and he was he was happy with that. Uh, so how's that been working out for you? Being for me, the oh, light not of Marxist great. legal theory. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not great at all. Uh, and so um, so. so with the uh, with the original subtitle gone, uh, the book becomes sort of a definitive statement on on the subject itself. And then from uh, from around, I guess starting in around the 1930s, when Stalin had really sort of consolidated power, uh, people started dying and disappearing weirdly, and it became problematic to have. Uh, certain ideas. And uh, Pashukanas was very much aware of this, uh, as was Stuchka, though Stuchka did less to disavow uh, his earlier writing. Stuchka actually dies prior to Pashukanas. Um, and it's in sort of an interesting way, because anytime you, the few people that do write about Stuchka, they always remark that he died of natural causes, uh, because it was so weird for a... Um, uh, a Soviet bureaucrat or apparatchik to die without being, in that time, without being murdered or disappeared. Uh, so everything, everyone that writes about Stichka always remarks he died of natural causes, which sort of leads me to believe he probably didn't die of natural causes, but that's what they say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Doth so, protest uh, too much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, so, Stuchka dies, but and before Pashukanis dies, between the time he wrote the general theory and when he finally passes, uh, he was the editor of, uh, of of like a Soviet law review uh, that published, you know, hundreds of scholarly works on the topic, which are either lost to time or lost to translation. Uh, for whatever reason, we don't have access to that stuff yet. Uh, but in the 1930s, during sort of the Stalinist counter-revolution or consolidation, 
uh, Pashikana started publishing a series of self-criticisms uh, where he started to admit that the theory he sort of he wouldn't say that he developed this theory because what he says is it is just an extension of the Marxist theory. Uh, but the concept of the commodity exchange theory of law is what Pashukanis writes about in the general theory of law and Marxism. During that period of self-criticism, he starts to write things where he says, ah, I kind of made some mistakes and, you know, maybe, maybe that wasn't uh, quite as incomplete. And, you know, maybe socialism in one country will work with what I'm trying to do here. Uh, and so he started doing that. The problem was, is that there was just no way to, um, there was just no way to backpedal fast enough and, and no way to incorporate what Pashukanis yeah. had done with what Stalin was trying to achieve, achieve. So Stalin needed full theoretical hegemony and, and, um, fealty to the notion of socialism in one state. And with Pashukanis committed to the idea that the state would eventually wither, this wasn't going to work for Stalin. So no matter how much he did, it just wasn't going to be enough. Well, is so isn't it the case, though, that Stalin was a very much like, you know, he he spoke of the withering of the state, um, but as like the result of its kind of maximum intensification first, right? Like. Do I have this wrong? I, I've, I was always under the impression that the Stalin line on the state was that since class struggle continued under socialism, uh, but in new forms, that the there's almost like a the rising and bringing to a crescendo of like state authority before the withering can happen. You know, it, that that seems to be almost like pretty consciously put that way. But I might have that wrong. Uh, I mean, he definitely talked like that, but I. I, I... I think it would probably be too charitable to think that he actually believed that. Oh um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually not super interested in whether or not he believed it. He I said just mean that, like, just talking about the withering of the state is not uh, is not the basis of conflict, right? It's more about the the understanding of what that means. He said, "We are for the withering away of the state, and yet we also believe in the proletarian dictatorship, which represents the tightest and mightiest form of state authority that has ever existed in history." To keep strengthening state power in order to prepare for the conditions for the withering of the way of state power. That is the Marxist formula. Is it contradictory? Yes, contradictory. But that contradiction is bit. vital <laughs> to, and wholly reflective of the Marxist dialectic. It's like, that doesn't well, make any sense. Yeah, but it's, it's you don't understand. It's just, it's dialectic. Exa exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason why a lot of people are hot or like allergic to the term dialectical now. Because they associate it with that kind of weird dismissal of the need to understand something. It's like, oh, no, oh don't worry, it's dialectic. Yep. Well, and that was the old uh, probably apocryphal uh, Ingalls quote, uh, you know, when I don't understand the relationship between two things, I refer to that relationship as dialectical. Um, but uh, I, 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 I don't believe that he said that. Yeah, I, I, I said it's apocryphal. It's an apocryphal quote. Yes. didn't actually happen, but it's like if you go to brainyquote.com or something, it'll be there. You know what's great is I just exactly. picked that quote off of a, a website that's sharing it as like as an explanation and not like as a joke. Hey everybody, Chris here. Just wanted to remind you guys of a couple of things. First of all, we have a Patreon. And if you like listening to us and think we deserve $2 a month of your hard-earned money, please go and sign up. 
Right now, our patrons get access to irregularly posted content that includes special episodes, where we do deep dives into stuff that might be too nerdy for our main feed, extra content from episodes that go way longer than we expected, and impromptu discussions of events and articles that we think are worth a bit of attention. The second thing I wanted to remind everyone of is that we are now part of the Lost Horizons Network, which is a dialectical pessimist podcasting network that includes us, The Regrettable Century, Red Library, and From 78. You can listen to us, Red Library, and From 78 using your favorite podcatching app, or find us by searching our respective names on Twitter and Facebook. We also have a special Lost Horizons Network collaboration podcast, which is a roundtable discussion including members of all three podcasts. Our network website can be found at losthorizonsnetwork.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Our roundtable discussions will be available to listen on your favorite podcatching app, and also look out for us on social media. Just search for the Lost Horizons Network. And as always, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help trick the algorithm into thinking that we are important and have something interesting to say. All right, back to the show. So, um, so yeah, so uh, Stalin, even even in that passage, is talking about the consolidation of state power and the building of state power, which is antithetical to what Pashukhanis was writing and obviously what Marx wrote. Um, and so no matter what Pashukhanis did, he wasn't ever going to be able to undo the idea that the, the whole underlying basis of commodity exchange through relied upon the the uh, uh, the withering of the state, the de- the decrease, the uh, denouement of state power, um, which was there was just nothing he could do, and so sure. uh, what ends up happening is um, other apparatchiks within the uh, Stalinist government start issuing uh, screeds and and build a uh, a campaign against Pashukhanis and his theory. Pashukhanis ends up getting labeled an enemy of the people, a traitor, a counter-revolutionary, and a spy secretly trying to wreck the state, an ally of Trotskyism and Bukharinism, ignorant of Marxism and Marxist philosophy. He mouths socialist phrases while espousing bourgeois ideas. Therefore, the commodity exchange theory of law was rotten, un-Marxist, anti-Leninist, erroneous, and a heretical form of legal nihilism or legal anarchism. It was a provocateur theory. Uh, is muddle-headed, scatterbrained, and custaristic. <laughs> and so, uh, basically, um, what what Stalin tried to say is that the commodity exchange theory of law was focused too entirely on on bourgeois law, and that was sort of Stalin's uh, way of saying something was bad was to say that it was a bourgeois affect. Um, I think and- that he believed it. I really do. I think that Stalin was a true believer. And uh, he was trying to communism Russia as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, I think I think he was a true believer. I think that he it would have been a little bit better if he was more pragmatic and less of a true believer. It would have been better for everyone. Yeah, honestly, a a little bit more cynical would have probably that probably would have been good. Um, Yeah, look, like I think so. That's part of why I mentioned it early on is I think that, you know, there are a lot of layers to these debates and i think that they all kind of overlap like 
starting from the premise of the need for a retreat from what felt like an ad, a, advance like well into the future right where you have like law as a temporary expedient you know and the state as transitional and like very few actually written down rules and you know you have revolutionary tribunals being set up by local soviets and you know the average person just weighs in and you know to have to retreat from that puts you know and to, to go into the period of needing to accumulate capital and whatever it starts this big debate about is you know are we trying to build the productive forces or are we trying to uh you know choke out the capitalist world and you know and then from that you get the debate about socialism in one country versus the permanent revolution and all of the they're all the same debate right so it, it's i think it matters that these debates all happen at the same time and the victors are the same set of people all the way through because there's basically a, an alternate vision of how this is going to go that wins out um and it's it this this the stalin one that has a it does have a a, a kind of coherence in terms of its overall vision about how to build the world of the future. Well, he um, was I don't I don't think it's a I don't think it's a good one, right. you know, but well he was definitely the one person who had sort of a singularity of purpose uh and and was able to ensure that everyone down the line um adhered to that singularity of purpose. Uh I mean, I have probably a less charitable um understanding of that purpose i think it was not motivated by true belief in what he was trying to accomplish and more motivated by um desire to consolidate his own power uh i think it was both so in in early 1937 uh during stalin's great purges pashikanis is disappeared uh secret police nab him somewhere and he's never seen in public again uh there's no trial um, and they specifically so that no outsider, if any, could tell what the actual charges were and what, if any, proof other than Pashikanis' own writings had been introduced against him. He is, uh, it's later published that he was found guilty, sentenced to death, and immediately executed. Uh, and the guy who replaces him is sort of the third pillar of, uh, of Soviet legal theory, who we don't talk about because he didn't really have anything interesting to say. He's just the one guy that people kind of remember who he was, uh, is Andrei Vyshinsky. And so you go from Stuchka to Pashikana Stuchka, whose main purpose was to um, disavow bourgeois law and, and to point out the way that bourgeois law was was wrong and why and whose interest bourgeois law uh, uh, was used to serve. Pashukanis, who extended Marx's own theory in order to develop a new model, and then Vashinsky, who just burned the whole fucking thing down and uh, did whatever Stalin told him to do. And uh, Vashinsky ends up writing the uh, Law of the Soviet State. Uh, he's also the chief prosecutor of, uh, of the Great Purges, uh, prosecuting Trotsky in, uh, in absentia. Uh, Victor Serge as well, I believe. Um, not a good dude, but <laughs> I was going to say he ranks among uh, the worst dudes uh, of the period. Yeah, at least at least within the con the context of the Soviet Union. You know, there were a lot of bad dudes in the late '30s around the world. So, <laughs> I mean, it's it's got to be between him and like Beria, right? For being like 
the dickhead. Like, I mean, other than Stalin himself. <laughs> uh, but it's, I mean, honestly, I think that Beria was probably worse than Stalin. Well, well Beria was bad because of all the child rape. And right. So look, it's just another another very quick digression here is I can see why a person would look at a, um you know look back at, at this historical moment and see just cynical naked use of power for things that don't appear to have been in anyone's benefit other than like a tiny handful. Uh and then just to to conclude from that that obviously these were cynical people who were lying were only interested in power. Um not that this is the main point of the discussion, or even one that we ever have to agree on, but I actually think it, I think it harder to accept that, uh, I, I think that this is more a matter of like what it, what it is that it means to be in power, right? And this is why it's a terrifying thing, because we need it, but also like at a certain point it becomes, it becomes a thing that, a process to justify itself. There's a, you know, discussion that you can have about whether or not uh, the sort of germ of Stalinism was in Leninism to begin with, which I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, but you I definitely necessarily don't. agree with or disagree with? I don't necessarily agree that the germ of Stalinism was in Leninism to begin mm -hmm. with. Um, I mean, I, I can't envision a scenario where Lenin commits to the notion, I mean, war communism aside, uh, where Lenin commits to the notion of socialism in one state um, to the degree that 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 Stalin forces the Soviet Union to do, right. uh, and or uh, or for it to become the imperial project that it became, uh, because uh, I mean, Soviet the the Soviets did become more or less an imperial power uh, once Stalin uh, came into to his position. So the only reason why I, I keep harping on this thing about you know being a true believer or not is because to me it's a the question of transition is really vital and i think you know thinking about class struggle and, and revolution and you know whatever all of these things as, as process um it's because we did an episode recently about yugoslavia and i think that there's just no way to get from partisan war of liberation against the nazis to uh ethnic conflict between different types of slavs uh you know, at the end of, at the end of the century, without ac acknowledging basically the way in which contradictions unfold and like new elements and old elements remerge, and the, the the Yugoslav wars of the '90s are not implicit in the liberation war fought by Tito, right? There's a there's a trajectory there, um, and so I, 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 the thing to try to figure out is how it unfolds. I, I guess the point to me about whether or not uh, these people were true believers or cynics is is important only because it guides us in deciding what lessons we've learned from the legal form that ended up being developed so uh the what the book that Vashinsky writes uh the uh the the law of the soviet state is there anything in there that are there any lessons we need to learn from that book other than hey this is what we should never do uh I tend to think that there's not a lot of value because I, I have copy a uh, copy of uh, one of the uh, the Russian criminal codes, uh, Soviet criminal codes, uh, and I mean there's just nothing there's nothing valuable in there to me. I mean during the NEP, I mean that's that's one of the things that everybody talked. Michael Head talked about in one of the articles that we 
that we had to read that uh, we'll link in the description is it is law ended up becoming indistinguishable it didn't become something new particularly during the nep it became something that was indistinguishable from uh from from other legal systems and so it's easier to disregard what happened legally in the Soviet Union from Stalin afterward if you think of them as, as cynics. If you think of them as true believers, then you have to reckon with with uh, how they came to those conclusions. And Absolutely. But that's 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 what I'm interested in. We're here to make doing, people right? uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> well look, so like if Pashukanis is right and I think probably is, at least about a lot of these things, about the, um, that like the decisive factor shaping law is economic relations, right? That, um, that, it, that this is a superstructural thing that, that grows from the base. When you think about the way in which uh, the, the primary uh, task that the, the people running the Soviet Union, they, they come to this agreement that the primary task is to build the productive forces, Right. In order to survive isolation, to survive a potential war with the capitalist world, um, which is to say a, a, a retreat from the, the notion of advancing, you know, and trying to make revolution, even at the expense of the Soviet state, making revolution in Germany and places where the productive forces are developed. Because once that becomes the task, then the legal system and all of the changes all start to make a lot of sense. If you have this criminal code that um, if you show up late to work, you know just a handful of times then there's like forced labor as as the as the the prescription like as the as as the um, as the punishment and it makes sense if you if you see this all flowing from the 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 notion that building the productive forces is the primary thing and everything else is subordinate um even if you think that building the productive forces up to some point is necessary in order to then get back on track, right, with changing the world. Um, and the reason why that matters is to me, as I guess, because that is a live debate that people on the left want to have about, you know, China and whatever. And I think to take it and to take it seriously, uh, which I think we're going to try to do at some point soon is do a probably very contentious episode about that. <laughs> But, you know, there's a logic to it, and it's more than just – to me, it looks like more than just cynicism. But I, I guess – I don't know. Maybe we're getting hung up on it. Well, no. I, I mean because there's an entire body of law that exists in, you know, in and at the time of the Cultural Revolution that has nothing to do with Pashukanis and Vyshinsky and Shchichka. Um There are – you know, there were legal theorists in China that existed at the time that we don't even know their names or their ideas yet. Um and same goes for 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 Cuba, uh, and so I don't necessarily think that the that the purpose of the Cultural Revolution was cynical the same way that I do think that about Stalinism. Uh, but the problem is, is we just don't have access to that material uh, to be able to make that sort of value judgment just because of things like I mean, fuck, it just hasn't been fucking translated. Yeah. 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 And so, uh, Pashikanis in in his writing, um, sort of draws the distinction between himself and and Stuchka. 
and this is where I tend to get lost in the commodity exchange theory of law. So Pashakanis writes that uh, Stutzka's understanding of law, of the nature of law, is was a, a system of relationships which answers to the interests of the dominant class and which safeguards that class with organized force. That resonated with me. That made sense to me. And in fact, in the article that I wrote, on uh, on American criminal law and introduction to Marcus jurisprudence, I wrote uh, and and Chris referenced uh, that law operates as a legitimizing agent that reaffirms existing social inequalities and perpetuates class contradictions by applying laws that are purported to be neutral but are actually quite unequal and biased in their origin and application. And that was basically just a restatement of Stuchka's idea, um, but it is a distinction between. Pashukanos and Stutzka. Even though I found myself siding with uh, Stutzka, I did so partially because commodity exchange theory of law seems... It's not intended to be abstract, but it seems abstract and complicated to me in a way that is um, a little unapproachable. Okay, so, I mean, um, essentially what use value is it is the the value that a commodity in any given like tradable commodity uh be that wool or wood or you know copper or whatever um it has an inherent value based on what it can be used for uh that's its use value the copper has a, a high use value because it's used in you know electronics and wool and clothing it's got an inherent value to it that isn't imposed upon it by any sort of arbitrary market mechanisms. And then the exchange value is essentially what someone is willing to pay for any given commodity. And exchange value is much more arbitrary and is guided by, like it, using the housing market, for example, in Austin, uh, where I moved away from about a year ago for this one of for this reason is that you can the the housing market in Austin skyrocketed because people who had more money were willing to pay more money for houses and it set the price of houses higher for no other reason than it was possible to ask more money for them so it's it's a, it, that's a perfect example to me of what exchange value is and how arbitrary it is and that is completely separate from use value, which is not arbitrary. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Exchange value is just like what a commodity uh, can be exchanged for, right? Basically, and that's that's an use value is what it can be used for. And production for use value seems to be the ultimate goal of uh, to put it in very not uh, grand, eloquent, and inspiring terms. Our purpose here is to. Uh, arrive at a state of affairs in which we're producing use values exclusively <laughs> and where does uh, where does commodity fetishism play into that just the the really simple way of putting it is that commodity fetishism is the is the phenomena by which um we convince ourselves that that things have an intrinsic value exactly um, yeah and that's it yeah well, that comes and, from and... like fetishism i mean people when they think of fetishism they think of of course, my first thought was of like 
you know, latex and, uh, you know, BDSM <laughs> and stuff like that. But from an, it's an anthropological term, which means assigning like some sort of uh, significance that isn't inherent to something and then acting as though that significance is inherent. Right, right. Um, and, and also the abstraction from how it was created. And so... Right, that's an important part. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's that it, the abstract elements of it that give it this kind of intrinsic value. Like money has a value. That's the way people think about it. That's, there's no... Uh, that, that is a fetish. Yeah. Right. Pashikanis wrote, uh, basically argued that the, the, uh, the, the commodity, the logic of the commodity form is the logic of the legal form. And it's trying to understand what the object of, what is the central object of the law, uh, in sort of bourgeois law, the central object is property, right? But in the commodity form exchange theory, the form of law is the representation of the relationship between between parties. And so Pashikanis argues that the juridical element in the regulation of human conduct enters where isolation and opposition of interests begin. Uh, he ties this closely to the emergence of the commodity form in mediating material exchanges. And so this basic materialist strategy was to correlate commodity exchange with the time at which man becomes seen as a legal personality, the bearer of rights as opposed to customary privileges, and furthermore is explicable in terms of the conceptual linkages which, which obtain between the sphere of commodity exchange and the form of law. So Pashikanas' argument is that the commodity in commodity exchange, each commodity must be the private property of its owner, freely given in return for the other. In their fundamental form, commodities exchange at a rate determined by their exchange value, not because of some external reason or because one party to the exchange demands it. Therefore, each agent in the exchange must be, one, an owner of private property, and two, formally equal to the other agents. Without these conditions, what occurred could not be commodity exchange. The legal form is the necessary form taken by the relation between these formally equal formally equal owners of exchange values. And that's lifted from China Mieville's between equal rights. Uh, but that's basically uh, what I was talking about in terms of the distinction between what is the, what is the object of, of the law? Is it, is it property as it is under bourgeois law where all laws sort of orients around the idea that we're preserving private property and preserving the interests of private property? Or is it about, uh, is it is the law need to be focused on um, how we govern interrelationships with one another, uh, and so that more or less is is what is meant by the commodity form exchange theory of law. Well, right. So bound up in that is the um, the 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 presumption, right? The 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 notion that the uh, Com the coming to power of the proletariat is the beginning of the end of class distinctions is the end of class society and of uh, private property um, right private property of a mode of production that is um, that is 
like it's the transition into a, a kind of world that has previously been unknown right so that like when the bourgeoisie takes power or becomes the dominant class it's not in order to uh it's not to abolish all class distinctions it's not to emancipate humanity right but i think pashukanis is at least let's say logically consistent he says that the basis of law is is uh is you know that there's a there's a homology between the logic of the commodity form and the logic of illegal form because once you abolish the one the other one has no basis for existence so you can't have like a new this is right if i'm being faithful to his his argument you can't properly conceive of a socialist law yeah absent formal it, equality it, as, as anything right as opposed to anything other than just a a series of tinkering with bourgeois legality until it's no longer necessary Right, right. No, that, that's... it's kind of like the abolition of prisons question. Like, yes, we need prisons because we still have crimes, and we still have crimes because we still have alienation and inequality. But like, at some point, we won't. We don't need a new kind of prison. But what we would imagine that new, whatever would take the place of prison, is so foreign from anything that we're, we currently know or understand that we wouldn't be able to articulate it. <laughs> So one of the most sort of long-standing and contentious issues with uh, with with not just Pashukanis' theory but legal theory in general is the relationship between um, actual codified laws and just norms, and this is sort of almost touching on some of those um, natural law issues, uh, the ideas of uh, the social contract. The social contract isn't written down anywhere it's not codified it's just something that we all have um sort of a learned inclination towards accepting that you know we're going to be able to uh to all eat together in a restaurant and feel reasonably reassured that no one's going to you know punch me in the neck um that's sort <laughs> is of that a, a, is that a concern you walk around with that that's sort of a, a fair you know uh a, presumption that you that you can make every time you go into the restaurant and that's sort of this uh adherence to these social norms the social contract as it were um versus you know actual written law which are drafted by bureaucrats or civil servants and passed by governments interpreted and enforced by courts and police uh but we have to focus on on the relationships the way whether it's you're looking at sort of the social norms or uh, the way people are actually applying these laws, you're concerned with the legal relationship, which is the way that the citizens and civil institutions behave within that society and their interactions, including acting upon their rights, filling obligations, not breaking criminal laws, which is what I was alluding to, uh, respecting others' rights, proposing entering into contracts, and that sort of thing. Um, in uh, in Bierne and Charlet's uh, sort of writing on Pashukanis and early uh, Soviet legal theory, they talk about um, the technical rules of railroad movement uh, and that railroad movement presupposes a single purpose, for example, the attainment of maximum haulage capacity, whereas the legal rules regarding the responsibility of railroads presuppose private claims and isolated interests. So if you think about, uh, if you think about, um, 
a, a medical treatment facility that deals with like uh, elderly patients. Okay. Okay. Uh, there's a set of rules that are going to govern both what the, the doctors and staff need to do uh, and also um, what the patients require. And there's a single purpose, which is to restore the patient's health or, or you know, or, or to improve their standard of living, whatever it is. Um, they have a technical character, but when the patient and the physician are regarded as isolated or antagonistic subjects, each of whom is the bearer of their own private interests, they become the subject of rights and obligations, and the rules that unite them become legal rules. So if, if there is no codified... Um, uh, if the health and safety code doesn't exist in the state of Texas and uh, you are doing triage in a hospital, you still have a singularity of purpose. Injured person comes in and we do what we can to improve this person's health, to restore their health or to improve their quality of life. And so right. whether or not the health and safety code exists, you're going to do those things. Right. So this is what like Lunacharsky is referring to as like customary law, right? Right, right, right. Is that is that the right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no. And that's the that's the distinction. And so Lenin talks about this uh, with respect to uh, the social relations and the laws of inheritance. He says that the law presumes the existence of private property and the private property arises only with the existence of exchange. Its basis in the already incipient socialization of social labor and the alienation of products in the market, whereas Pashakanis argued that this complexity of legal forms did not exist in the absence of capitalism, that the legal form can only it, be found in private law. Right. It did not exist in the absence of capitalism. So it, it's a thing that is birthed by the capitalist mode of production. It's, like, it, it seems to be a thing that's, that's birthed by bureaucracy more than anything else. Right, because there's, there's a complex set of laws you know, governing the you know, Byzantine empire, right? Right, right, right. Um, and so as bureaucracy becomes more and more complex, so to do the laws that govern these interrelationships. Um, yeah, I guess it, it makes more sense to say class society. And so... Rather, not the capitalist mode of production, but class society and, uh, in a broader sense. And so you counterpose that with something like the constitution, which is short and um, unified, more unified in purpose. And so the, the Constitution is what uh, Pashukanas would refer to as, as public law. So you have, say, the Texas Health and Safety Code, which um, we would consider more regulatory, versus you have something like the Constitution, which establishes uh, sort of a, a baseline amount of rights uh, that, that people just have by virtue of participating in that society. Um, but the problem is, is as we develop these sort of complex, what I would call uh, um, the product of, of bureaucracy, these sort of complex regulations, they come in conflict with those rights. And that's why we have people who can sit on the Supreme Court in the United States and talk about uh, the interpretation of the Constitution in relation to uh, some random law that a legis that the legislature passed, and you can have one person that can um, square it with what's in the Constitution, and one person who cannot. Uh, that these things are in constant conflict, um, and figuring out who 
wins that conflict, at least in in the United States or in a capitalist society, is it's pretty easy to look at you know the the good old qui bono who's who's the, who are the people that are going to benefit as a result of this interpretation uh and so we make sure that the interpretation always serves the interest of the of the bureaucracy or of the you well know. right what is what is it that that it said about between equal rights force decides Well, this from uh, from Mieville's book is interesting, and it and it goes back to the distinction between Stichka and Pashikanis, and sort of um, why I guess I feel more comfortable identifying with with uh, Stichka than I do Pashikanis is um, the sort of alternative conception of law that's that's favored uh, by Marxists of of Pashikanis's time seemed to go some way to theorizing the real or material existence of law, that these were the sociological theories of law, which is more or less what I've kind of explained that I sort of subscribe to, um, which treat law as the product of a conflict of interest and as the manifestation of state coercion. Again, the law is is developed by and for the purpose of of, uh, benefiting those special interests. this is sort of a positive, positivist um, theory of law. Law is seen as the will of the state, enforcement, coercion. These are necessary and definitional to that to the positivist theory, uh, a sociological understanding of, of law and crime and things like that. But unlike the uh, the the mainstream positivists, Stuchka, uh believed that the state was not seen as a neutral body, but as an organ of the ruling class control, which is why many Marxists assumed that by simply adding in the element of class struggle to positivist theories, they would be able to t- attain a, general, a genuinely materialist or Marxist theory of law. But Pashikanis rejected this idea. Pashikanis believed that this kind of less positivism was, was a source of satisfaction for legal theorists, but it was just a source of disappointment for him because it excluded the legal forms uh, as such from the, uh, the field of observation. These things became, uh, became abstract. They weren't um, something uh, scientific in the Marxist sense. They were, I guess, softer. Um, and so... He, well, it's, they, they ceased to be really much contentious in it. You know, it's just like you've arrived at a and this is this is it, and and Pashukanis is somebody who's dedicating himself to extreme discomfort in order to figure out what else might it be. And I think that it's from what I understand the where where Lenin stands on all this, like he doesn't Lenin doesn't agree with the idea of creating a new system of socialist jurisprudence. Well, coming up with a new system of socialist jurisprudence, he might have been more in the camp of just adding on to the law as it existed in order to, you know, turn it into a, a bourgeois law without the bourgeoisie. Well, Lenin was, was, he was, a, he was a lawyer, right? Where he was trained he in was. law. Yeah. He would refer to not the rule of law, but the rule of regulation. And Lenin's 
primary focus was on how, how much how much water do we need in this given city and how do we get it there and what are the right, rules for right. making sure. Like he, he wasn't primarily concerned other than um, adjudicating counter-revolutionary behavior, uh, which the uh, the revolutionary tribunals were primarily concerned with dealing. Uh, Lenin's were how do we make sure the trains keep running, uh, and and what are the rules to make sure that you know uh, no one person has to operate this one section of of a train for too long before they pass out and the train goes off the rails, things like that. Uh, that was Lenin's primary concern. Well, it's a very practical set of concerns whenever the trains aren't running. Yeah, and, and, and when you're and, the, the head of state, essentially. And that's yeah. what Lenin believed would be the remnant of law uh, in the classless society, that it would not be the, you know, the, the, the phrase that, um, particularly in the American context that we talk about, is uh, adherence to the rule of law. Uh, that, that that's why uh, suspending habeas corpus is uh, such an extreme um, such an extreme measure because it, it suspends the rule of law uh, it, I, and presumably because the government has determined that people aren't adhering to the rule of law and so Lenin was moving away from that and wanted to focus on the rule of regulation but Pashikhanis writes that the sociological approach which looks to the economic and political interest behind specific legal and penal measures appears as a significant advance over formalism. But here again, there is disappointment. For exclusive attention is directed towards the class interests served or the economic functions performed by one or other measure of law or punishment. In other words, exclusive to the question of content, why these interests or functions should have been served by the legal form of regulation or by penal repression remains a question unaddressed uh, and so that's basically the uh the the critique of establishing these penal codes which define punishments is none of those penal codes are um, intended to address the underlying uh causes of crime the underlying conflicts that result in crime occurring this from yeah. uh Mievel paraphrasing um paraphrasing Pashikhanis is good, it says that uh, law is the regulatory mechanism generalized in an economy based on commodity production. production. And this is the um, that distinction that I was talking about between uh, proper, uh, property as the object of law versus interrelationships as the object of law. It says the legal form is, the, is that form which regulates legal relationships. Dispute in those relationships is central because without the dispute, there would be no need of regulation. The legal subject is part of this legal relationship as every legal relation is a relation between subjects. The subject is the atom of the legal theory, its simplest and irreducible element. So the commodity, in Marx's words, is a very strange thing. An object brought to market to be exchanged through the medium of money for one usually very different thing. And, and this is just straight commodity form theories from Marx. For these two things to enter into relation with each other, they must be brought to market by the owners who must recognize each other as owners. Each human agent must recognize the relation of all others in that market to their commodities, a relation of exclusive ownership, and in so doing, create a relationship of abstracted, isolated egoism between each other. 
the juridical relationship exists in the interface between human relations with their commodities and their com concomitant relations with each other. And so Pashikanis from Marx talks, commodities cannot themselves go to market and perform exchanges in their own right. We must therefore have recourse to their guardians who are the possessors of those commodities. And so again, we're not focusing on the property itself. We're focusing on the relationship between these two property owners and disputes that arise as a result of, of those relationships. So in order that these objects may enter into relation with, with each other as commodities, their guardians must place themselves in relation to one another as person who will reside in those objects and must behave in such a way that each does not appropriate the commodity of the other and alienate his own, except through an act to which both parties consent. The guardians must therefore recognize each other as owners of private property. This juridical relation, whose form is the contract, who form, I'm sorry, skip that. This juridical relation, whose form is the contract, whether as part of a developed legal system or not, is a relation between two wills which mirrors the economic relation. The content of this juridical relation is itself determined by the economic relation. And so uh, when, when you had blanked out for a little bit, Chris, Jason and I were uh, going over the idea that um, the, in the absence of codified regulation, people are still going to engage in um, affair, business or affairs, for lack of a better word. Things mm -hmm. still need to be done triage on a patient still needs to be done um, acquiring uh, sustenance needs to be done and certain people are going to have access to certain sustenance and other people to others and there will be um, commingling uh, between those those two people and so right. we have all of these complex rules that it kind of explain, how and when and where we're supposed to be able to do this. But even if we didn't have those things, we would still engage in that relationship and engage in that, in that sort of trade. And so what Pashikanis was, was trying to do was to shift the focus away from ensuring that uh, the property was the object of the complicated legal regulations that we develop but rather the interests of of the the the, the two people who engage in uh, in a relationship for the purpose of not transporting a good or, or a commodity but achieving an end which was mm -hmm. health or you know uh, eating things like that right this why that the, the understanding uh, the difference between use values and exchange values helps with understanding Pashukanis' thinking about like the difference between like administrative and like technical rules for uh, like the five-year plan as opposed to like legal rules for commodity exchange. Like this is the way in which goods and services are, are uh, distributed on the market. <laughs> And so that's where the reason it's important to understand commodity fetishism is because that's where the term legal fetishism comes from. 
and sort of the the Marxist abhorrence to legal fetishism, the idea that law is uh, this autonomous um, thing. Uh, that law is like sort of like a a supernatural force that exists outside of the institutions that bring it into being and uh, you know enforce it. That law is like and it, that, that's I mean it's it's a bourgeois concept like from the the from the Enlightenment because it was a huge advancement from arbitrary rule by fiat. You know, right. law was then an unassailable construct that everyone had to abide by. And that's something that Marxists um, sort of reflexively reject is, mm-hmm. uh, is, is the, the concept of legal fetishism, the concept that there is some autonomy to law, that there is some, um, some kind of natural law, because that's not a materialist way of, of, of thinking about things and thinking about how we conduct our affairs. Um, Pashukanis doesn't quite reject the autonomy of law, which uh, is part of which form part of the problem between he and uh, and and Stalin's government. Um, but others like like Stuchka did reject the autonomy of law um, because they did reject the idea of legal fetishism. And I, I would have to uh, cover it in another episode, but the concept of natural law and Marxism is um, expanding. There are, there are people still writing on the topic today about uh, trying to understand how we engage in these interpersonal relationships um, in the absence of, you know, adhering to codified, you know, rules for conducting our business. I mean, so much of what we do is still based on, you know, nods and handshakes uh, and, and not in referring to, you know, what the government code says about how we conduct this this business or what the property code says about you know whether or not you can sleep on my couch um and so there's 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 a uh, we can talk about this in a future episode but there is a writer Olafemi Taiwo who uh I hope is the correct pronunciation who has a book called the uh a Marxist theory of natural law that kind of gets into some of these ideas but it is important to kind of understand um commodity fetishism and its relationship to law in the form of legal fetishism and to know that uh, predominantly Marxists, especially um, those Marxists who are not trained in legal studies, reject, uh, I mean, pretty much everybody that the three of us came up with in the Trotskyist tradition uh, strongly rejected this sort of discussion that we're having about law because they would have referred to it as legal fetishism. Mm-hmm. Right. The idea that it's, I mean, to say something like natural law would be anathema. Right. Which, which illustrates a problem. Um, and that's why it was, it was important for me, even though I'm a dummy, uh, to, to try to start writing about this when I was in law school, because here I was a person who had sort of a, um, uh, a fairly deep understanding of of criminal law and sort of a natural aptitude for understanding the um, the black letter law, which is just what's written down in the codes, understanding the procedure and stuff, and also understanding why people still behaved the way they behave despite all of these 
written prohibitions to that behavior. Um, so yeah, I think it's um, a mistake and either a naive or a cynical mistake to uh, to reject uh, legal understanding as legal fetishism. Ju- I just reject legal understanding as nerd shit. Well, that too. But, but I mean, in the way that we can reject uh, commodity fetishism, I, I, I think is, is different. Um, we can reject commodity fetishism because these things in an objective and material matter, manner do not have intrinsic value. Uh, but the way that we conduct our affairs within one, between one another, those norms... Uh, things like the social contract, a lot of it is perhaps learned behavior, but I do think that that most of us behave the way we do just because, I mean, aside from the psychopaths and the sociopaths, because we want to be held in regard by each other and we want to feel like we hold them in regard. And so there's something undergirding that um right there's something just like human exactly seemingly innately right exactly exactly Um, and the material is another that's another uncomfortable uh topic for people who think of themselves often often for people who think of themselves as materialists right is uh is the notion of a human nature yep uh right and Um, so the 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 hardline materialist would would reject this entire conversation and i think it's an important one to have i think i would even I don't know if I would even hardline materialist. Um, I think maybe more like vulgar materialist. Sure, know, is the word I would use. Because I don't think that. Uh, well, I don't know. On the one hand, maybe I don't care very much, but I also don't think that I'm. Uh, I do tend not less to care. Mature. Yeah, not caring <laughs> is good for you. Um, I don't know if I. I don't think I'm like less materialist than that person. But even if I were, I suppose that that's fine. So that's not really a that's not a hill that I'm interested in going up, let alone dying on. I can be more ide- I can be a little more idealist and a little less materialist than I previously thought of myself. That's okay. Oh yeah, I mean, I think of myself as the the posturing uh, hardline materialist that I was when I was younger, and I think about how much of an insufferable dick I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, maybe I'm not like that anymore, and that's fine. <laughs> 